This program is supported by an educational grant from Sun Pharma Canada, Inc., made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalogs. It's season two. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. I'm a dermatologist who spends part-time in the community, part-time academic in Halifax, beautiful East Coast. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from dermatologists outside your center. This podcast is designed to change some of that. The goal of this series is to help you, the dermatology residents, get answers from expert dermatologists across the country to some of your burning questions on key areas of our practice. One of those experts, who you heard from last year, is Dr. Vincent Richet. He's returning for round two of Dermalogs. We chatted last year about lasers, and this year we're going to talk about two somewhat distinct topics, photodynamic therapy, or PDT, and phototherapy. So Dr. Richet is a medical and cosmetic dermatologist, and he holds positions as clinical instructor and director of continuing medical education at the Department of Dermatology and Skin Science at the University of British Columbia. So welcome back, Vincent. Thank you. I'm so glad to be back. We are so happy to have you back. So hopefully we'll be able to cover some uh, exciting topics about other parts of the light spectrum, if you will. Exactly. We can get excited about devices and geek out once more together. (laughs) Sounds good to me. So first off, let's get talking about photodynamic therapy or, you know, just to make our conversation easier, let's call it PDT. Um, you know, one of these things I remember as a resident learning all the different, you know, how you put the stick on and what light you use and et cetera, et cetera. But I have to admit, I didn't get a lot of hands-on experience. So maybe from your end, what is PDT? Yeah, I think it really makes sense to try to define it because really we're putting stuff on the skin, we're using activating lights, you know, how is it really different than PUVA, for instance? Yeah, exactly. And so... When we uh, think of the photodynamic effect, it's really a holy trinity. There's three factors involved. First, we need a photosensitizer that will be applied to the patient. And in modern PDT, that's done uh, topically. The second thing is that we need a wavelength of activating light. And when we're dealing with PDT, that wavelength is often going to be in the visible spectrum, either an artificial blue light or a red light, or more recently, we've started using daylight, so sunlight, to activate PDT. And the third component of that is oxygen. And that really the patient brings uh, to the table, if you will. And that's because we need oxygen to create reactive oxygen species through that process. And so once the photosensitizer is present in the skin, it's going to be turned into its active form. And that active form can get excited by visible light. Once it moves from its excited state to its resting state, this is sort of our high school physics, uh, you know, uh, uh, photon release kind of uh, science. It can uh, change regular oxygen into reactive oxygen species that are going to be damaging to the tissue where they are. And so you can wonder, you know, why, you know, this is this injury bad, right? But the photosensitizers is preferentially uh, absorbed and converted uh, within, let's say, actinic keratosis or superficial basal cell tissue. And so that's where it's going to selectively have its reactive oxygen species effect. That's great, actually, thinking about it that way, because as you were talking, I was thinking to myself, you know, how do you control some of that damage and I think it sounds like maybe you do by targeting um, the specific abnormal cells in the skin is that a good way to think about it 
Yeah, there. That's very smart. There are so many ways in which PDT is selective, right? Uh, first of all, the tissue itself is more avid for metabolism of the sensitizer. The second thing is that we apply it where we need it, right? So we can be uh, uh, selective in that way. And then where we activate the lights. So with our light sources, we can be even further specific in terms of the location where we're using it. Now, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, you think about uh, photodynamic therapy is using a different type of light than you would with, you know, traditional phototherapy. And so how are they different? Yeah, the, uh, you know, there's a lot of contrasting and comparing factors. You know, what I like to compare it to the most is, let's say, topical PUVA, right, where we apply sorrel into the skin and then we use ultraviolet light. This is more of an anti-inflammatory treatment. And, you know, we wonder, is there a slight increased risk of uh, causing skin cancers down the line if we use this treatment excessively? Differences with PDT. So number one, the photosensitizer that we apply to the skin is changed to something else by cells. So it's actually a pro-photosensitizer. It's not like sorolin that is itself going to do the work. The second component of it is that rather than using ultraviolet light to activate it, we're using visible light. You know, you will remember that shorter wavelengths are more energetic and can cause more biological actions. But, and that's where more of the action has been in dermatology in the, uh, in the past. But we're finding out that visible light, even though it's a bit less energetic, can have a lot of uh, biological effects. The contrary to the PUVA, here we're actually treating precancerous conditions, right? And so we're not accumulating DNA damage so much. We're trying to treat precancerous conditions or let's say in situ uh, non-melanoma skin cancers. And so we think that repeat use is actually going to have a bit of a preventative effect for, to carcinogenesis rather than increasing it. Right. So we're using all those physics again, and that makes a lot of sense. When you're looking at a patient, you know, that might have some actinic damage, uh, pre-skin cancers, superficial non-melanoma skin cancers, how do you identify if they would be an appropriate candidate for PDT or, or even an ideal candidate? How do you select that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I feel like that's something that has changed so much since I've graduated and when with my practice maturing. You know, I think when you and I examine patients, our first concern when we do their skin check is, okay, is there a skin cancer to cut off? Right. Once that's settled, we get into prevention mode and trying to uh, treat actinic keratosis to prevent squamous cell. If they're just a localized treatment, we, you know, we have our cryo gun uh, uh, on our holster uh, but we basically decide, is this patient a field treatment patient or are they just a localized treatment patient? Once we decide that they're a, a field treatment patient, uh, it's, that's when it get, the decisions get a little bit more complicated. You know, I think we have inexpensive FUDEX that we've had forever. We know how it behaves and it's extremely effective. And so in my patients that are willing to go through the process of FUDX with maybe a few weeks of redness and cresting and scaling and what, uh, you know, the social downtime related to that, FUDX is probably going to be my first line treatment, especially in mm -hmm. line with newer uh, New England Journal of Medicine publications. I was going to ask you about that. So you jumped the gun, but I like it. Yeah. Being proactive. You know, I think we all knew that FUDX was super reliable and that its its effect is very reproducible. One thing that that 
paper did not really capture is how much our patients hate doing it and mm -hmm. the redness and the crusting and how much they interrupt uh, their treatments. You know, pr prior that, to that paper, we kind of thought that most modalities were as equivalent as each other, right? Maybe Effudex, Imiquimod, PDT, Ingenol, uh, uh, we thought they were pretty much more of the same, but that the downtime was going to be different. And that's really something that's going to um, be an advantage for PDT is that the local reaction of redness and crusting is going to last about a week for most treatments. You took the words out of my mouth, which was how long is the downtime? Because I think one of the biggest complaints that my patients have will be, well, you know, it's hard for them to come or they don't want to come up with three weeks or six weeks or longer of downtime where they may have social engagements or they're interacting or they're face forward. And so if there's an option where they have less time, that's probably more amenable to that type of patient that maybe has, has to go out and, and interact and, and cares about that in particular. Exactly. You know, I think when I started my practice, when I have a 75-year-old patient, I would ask them, are you retired? I no longer do that because a lot of them are still working or super active socially. I say, do you, <laughs> I say, do you work? And so those two to three weeks or four weeks of downtime that we're giving them are not, I think, compatible with everyone. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, the quote-unquote ideal PDT patient is someone that needs field treatment is unwilling to go through something like FUDEX, but would be able to tolerate something that uh, will give them about a week of downtime by reorganizing their professional or their social agenda. I, I guess if you're thinking about, you know, using, uh, saying like FUDEX fluorouracil is superior in some ways, but thinking about downtime, I, I think when Iginal Mebutate came out, we were all a little bit like, oh, great, this is going to be awesome and it's going to have less downtime. Um, but I, I think maybe my understanding is that PDT would be a little bit more effective or reliable compared to Iginal. I don't know if there's been a head-to-head, -head, but... Well, in that uh, uh, New England uh, Journal article from uh, earlier uh, last year, you know, the suggestion was that Iginal did the weakest, basically, and PDT mm -hmm. did it slightly better than that. The, um, you know, one thing that's hard to say from that trial is that we are comparing FUDEX BID for four weeks versus one session of PDT, right? And yeah. so I don't, you know, maybe patients are tougher in Halifax, but there's not a lot of my patients that are uh, going through four weeks of FUDEX twice a day with a big smile on their face. <laughs> These are the patients that come back and say to you, what did you do that to me for? Although I must say, this is a side note, but I always prep patients by showing them photographs of what type of reaction mm. to expect, because otherwise you can guarantee they're going to be calling your office or showing up in your office um, not happy. So I guess on that uh, vein, when you're counseling a patient regarding PDT, what do you typically counsel them on? The I do the same as you do, I, but uh, it, maybe it's less sophisticated. I open Google and I type my face on FUDEX and I click Google image and I show all these horrible faces to people. And really, I don't show them PDT specific photos because regardless of what it is, they're going to be red. They're going to be crusty. Uh, socially, it's not that great. And um, I tell them, you know, with F with a routine course of FUDEX, this is going to be two, three, four weeks or more. And, uh, you know, we have other options that are in office like the PDT, which would be one week. 
After the PDT treatment, we do recommend, though, that they stay out of direct sunlight for 48 hours to sort of contain their reaction. That makes a lot of sense. Now, we talked about sort of, is it worth it in in the realm of how much um downtime they would have but i guess just thinking about dollars and cents so i I know there are some provinces where i think pdt uh, is covered under provincial plan so i think manitoba comes to mind i will say in nova scotia that is not the case i don't know about bc or the rest of the country but in terms of -of out-of-pocket costs for patients can you ballpark me or is that something you don't want to talk about (laughs) yeah i mean the you are right that it is totally different across the country And so there's two components to it. Number one is the photosensitizing drug itself. And so uh, in British Columbia, for instance, there is no coverage for photosensitizers, but there is pretty decent coverage when people have extended medical coverage. Uh, When I worked out of Quebec, there was some special authority paperwork that I could request for my patient with multifocal superficial basal cell so that the drug could be covered. When I worked in Quebec, I also had a a fee code for activation of photodynamic therapy, something that doesn't exist uh, in British Columbia, for instance. And so it's really going to depend on which situation the patient is in, right? And so if, you know, someone from BC who is lucky enough to have good coverage and uh, has uh, discretionary spending or something else could basically put the entire cost of their procedure on there. But some people... You know, I have a lot of people who own businesses and they have zero coverage, but mm-hmm. maybe, you know, being out with FUDEX for three weeks is worth that much more money. Absolutely. Yeah. You think you thinking of it that way um, does put it into perspective. Mm-hmm. Now, just thinking about that um, other option that we've had recently, which is the daylight PDT option. Do you do much about that? Um, what are your thoughts on that compared to the artificial light source PDT? Yeah, so I was very lucky as Dr. Harvey Louis fellow in 2014-2015, even before daylight uh, photodynamic therapy was officially on label uh, to start doing some cases. And, uh, you know, there were some very interesting trials out of Europe and Australia that showed that it was a non-inferior way of administering PDT in a split phase and split study trial. And basically, you know, when our patients do conventional PDT, We prep the area, we put their sensitizer on, they wait for a few hours, and we shine the activating light on there. So they've accumulated a lot of protoporphyrin-9 that we activate very quickly. And the number one side effect and problem is pain, 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 okay? At the side, it's a, that reactive oxygen species pain is something they've never felt. And I have a handful of patients that have told me after, you will never make me do that again. The... (laughs) The part of that is that you need to have a device in your office and someone who is activating the patient and maybe the patient is waiting in one of your exam rooms. And so there it is a bit onerous of time and of resources. Mm -hmm. The daylight PDT is way less resources and more importantly, way less pain. And so Mm -hmm. the patient comes to the office, we prep the skin, we put sunscreen on them to protect them from UVB and UVA, but they're still going to get blue, red, white light through that sunscreen. We put the Medvix on them and they go sit outside for a few hours, about two to two and a half hours. So our patients here go 
these are sun damaged people that we we keep telling them to stay out of the sun. <laughs> then you send they, them out in the sun. They go sunbathe on Granville Island for two and a half hours before they return back and our staff rinse off the product from them. So I have a logistical question related to that, which is, okay, BC, your weather might be a little bit more um, predictable than here on the East Coast, which it could be raining one second and sunny the next. And so how do you actually book those patients or... Do you have a way where you're like, oh, it's a nice day, get the daylight people in? How do you actually like do that from a practical perspective? Yeah, the practical aspect. So in reality, at our um, latitudes, we can probably just activate PDT from April to September grossly. However, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you, you think we're uh, predictable, but it rains a lot here, right? And so <laughs> we do have a tendency to, so we will book our daylight PDTs in July and August. Okay. And we will tell our, so we will tell our patients that, you know, if they booked a week off because, uh, uh, you know, of a business trip or something else, you know, that they want to recover hiding away, that we might be, because we're equipped with conventional PDT, that rather than doing the daylight, we might activate them with red light if they really hold on to it, to that. Okay. Okay. But the people who have experienced both, you know, the pain level of doing daylight PDT is between zero to two. You know, the biggest complaint I've had about daylight PDT is um, I got sunscreen in my eyes and it's tongue. Or, <laughs> and I've had a few people actually come back to the practice and ask me if this was a sham because they just basically felt nothing and just had this stuff oh. and stuff. Of course, they got a reaction a few days later, right? And so yeah. uh, it, is, it is certainly interesting. One thing that I think I was really underestimating when I started doing this is that someone else who is a trained professional is doing it for you. Mm -hmm. You know, I have trays to whiten my teeth at home that I never use. And if I go into the office and get my teeth whitened, I'm more happy with that service. You know, think of the number of times that we've prescribed Defudex to people, explained everything, showed the photos, and they came back kind maybe a bit confused or not too sure of how to do it, right? And so, All the time. And so I, you know, I wonder if... There is a plus value, not only within the uh, short recovery time of PDT, but also with the fact that, you know, the people who know how to assess actinic keratosis are doing it. And they're not just spot treating, they're field treating. They're really, you know, using their expertise to do that. And I think maybe, you know, we'll probably talk about this a little bit more when we discuss phototherapy um, as its own entity. But I think I, sometimes I think about it the same way. Our phototherapy unit here in Nova Scotia also provides treatment and just putting on the same topical steroid, having a nurse apply it versus the patient applying it at home, you see significant improvement faster of their skin. And it's kind of nuts because you think it's the same thing. They're doing the same, but clearly there's something to be said about having the proper application amount, et cetera. Um, and so that does make sense as well to me. One more question. You mentioned uh, about the pain side of things. For uh, conventional PDT, do you use some type of local... Um, like a topical emla or something like that? Or do you just, you know, grin and bear it? Here's a squeezy ball. Yeah, there are many ways that have been studied to try to improve pain control with PDT, but that bizarre reactive oxygen species pain doesn't seem to be reliably responsive to very many things. The other component of that is that we want oxygen. And so we do not necessarily want to create vasoconstriction with topical anesthetics or injections with epinephrine or maybe even too much cold, right? 
because we right. do use forced cool air or cool sprays to get people through the process if they're very uncomfortable. But, uh, you know, we can wonder what are we doing to that biochemical reaction during that time? Science mm. gets you every time. <laughs> um, okay, before we move on to phototherapy, um, do you think there's anything else that we haven't covered about PDT that you think is uh, critical for our residents to hear? Well, you know, one thing that is uh, both extremely tedious to memorize, but also very cool to understand is that PDT is basically an iatrogenic form of porphyria. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, no one likes to memorize all these enzymes and all these diseases. But, you know, if you understand the mechanism of action of PDT sensitization, which is basically the idea that you're providing ALA exogenously and bypassing a rate limiting enzyme to the point where you reach another rate limiting enzyme and you have protoporphyrin 9 accumulation, we are basically temporarily giving erythropoietic protoporphyria to our patients, right? And, uh, <laughs> um, and of course, if they go outside and they're, they're stinging, it's kind of those same symptoms that we attribute to that disease, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and I think I blocked that out because porphyria is always such a, um, a massive topic. It's always that night before you look at the pathway, you do it every year, you try to jam it in your brain. Um, and so this practical application probably does make that pathway a little bit easier for people to remember or residents, at least for when, when you're studying guys. Yeah. I still have that handwritten note, uh, you know, to view as I was going to the exam, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you pull it out, you stuff it in your bag, you go right to the exam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, great. Well, that's a great discussion around PDT. I think maybe we'll shift gears a bit. And even though um, in some ways, I always think about all these things together in my brain, they are very distinct uh, parts of the light spectrum. And so maybe let's talk about more traditional phototherapy. Um, and uh, before we get into all the nitty gritty, maybe just give me that high level overview of the types of phototherapy that we have available in Canada right now. Yeah, I think it really helps to approach it, you know, spectrum wise in terms of the technologies that we have available. And so, you know, UV phototherapy, we can easily separate it first within uh, UVB spectrum versus UVA spectrum. And I think that the overwhelming majority of phototherapy that we're exposed to is of the full body type whether it be narrowband UVB or broadband UVB. But we also have some localized sources of UVB exposure, mm -hmm. whether they be uh, hand foot units or combs or tiny little bulbs, or in fancier centers, maybe an eczema lamp, which is a uh, not quite a laser because unfortunately we don't have any eczema lasers uh, for sale in Canada, but that allows for localized delivery of higher doses of UVB. On the UVA spectrum, we, you know, I think PUVA is really what launched UV phototherapy, uh, you know, um, decades ago. And under PUVA, we have many ways of sensitizing patients, whether it be systemic bath or just topical with uh, creams and ointments, for instance, for palmoplantar disease. Some centers administer UVA and UVB because there is some weak evidence that it might do a little bit better to treat eczema. 
And then lastly, we can use the deepest penetrating, so long wave UVA, which is UVA1 phototherapy, to try to treat more dermal diseases and to, mm -hmm. let's say, suppress the inflammation of diseases like morphia or scleroderma or GVH. Whereas when we think more of traditional phototherapy, we're more in the uh, area of atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, mycosis fungoides, vitiligo. Right. Um, at our center, I know we do have uh, UVA, UVB, and within the UVB, we have the narrow band and the broadband. Um, broadband, I mean, not using it that often, sometimes for the sort of uremic puritis end of the rope type of things. But do you guys use much UV, sorry, broadband UVB? Um, at your center? You know, the it's so interesting to think of how narrowband UVB became quote-unquote the gold standard, right? If we really look back to the history, uh, you know, a very smart person shone people with psoriasis with multiple peaks of wavelengths and realized that uh, 311, 313 actually cleared patients with psoriasis faster. Uh, when we put them head-to-head, -head, they're both very good treatments, and maybe narrowband has superiority in regards to treating psoriasis and probably vitiligo. But I think the truth is, if you have a device and you have patients who need it, uh, they're both very good. You are right. There is okay. some suggestion that uremic pruritus and some other diagnoses might do a little bit better uh, with the broadband treatment, though. Okay. Uh, good to know. Also, you know, I, I'm not going to lie, I haven't seen a ton of success with the comb version. Have you had some good success with phototherapy comb? I mean, hand, foot, yes, full body unit for sure. I've found the comb a little bit lackluster, but uh, then again, maybe I haven't given it a fair shake. Uh, I feel the same. I have to say, you know, melanin in hair is very good at shielding ultraviolet light, right? And so, <laughs> you know, common sense might dictate that uh, this is uh, uh, an uphill battle. Fair enough. Okay, let's take a question now from a dermatology resident. the world headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. Hi Dermalogs, this is Annie Liu from Toronto. My questions are, when you first assess a patient, how do you decide to prescribe phototherapy and where do you start? Yeah, and I mean that's a very good question. You know, the and I wish that the answer was very scientific, but it's actually extraordinarily practical. It has to do with the technologies that are available at your center where your patient lives and what they do for a living. Because the, and I always joke around with my patients with this, I tell them the number one side effect of phototherapy is that you have to go. And so, you know, it requires that commitment of, you know, for psoriasis and eczema, maybe uh, willing, being willing to go two to three times a week for maybe 30 exposures or more. And in the case of vitiligo, much longer uh, prolonged treatment. Yeah, the um, and that's really what we see in terms of main issue from light, I believe, is that people drop out. Maintaining expectations or setting expectations, I guess, is, is really key. Um, what do you say to people? This is just something I thought of as you were talking, and, and this actually literally happened to me today. But what do you say to people that go, uh, okay, I live pretty far, but, you know, there's like a tanning salon down the street. Can't I just go there? I suspect you have a, a sort of pat response to that. What do you say? Yeah, I tell them that uh, we, we have a, a narrow band booth, and that's usually when we have that discussion. 
I tell them that uh, the sun and UVA tanning salons are considered class one carcinogens by the World Health Organization and that our medical booths actually emit light that is very effective at uh, reducing inflammation and that we try to take, quote unquote, the garbage out of it. And that, in fact, uh, the narrowband UVB lights that we have available if they increase the risk of skin cancer, that increase is so low that it could not even be measured in places where it's studied, like in Ireland, where it's only redheads, where if anyone's going to get skin <laughs> cancer from treatment, it might be them. Um, I was just thinking about that's a much better response than my response, which is typically like, oh, no, don't do that. That's bad. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to take that, take the garbage out of it. I like that. Uh, you, you, it's like we're on the same wavelength. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was yes, going to throw yeah. that. I couldn't help myself. But, I, we, you know, <laughs> you mentioned about skin cancer risk. And I was just about to ask you, you know, how do you balance that long-term risk of skin cancer versus the benefit of treating whatever inflammatory condition it is with phototherapy, especially thinking about those, you know, fair-skinned, you know, Irish folks, for example. How do you balance that risk or how do you present it to patients? You know, I think we were really, um, we've had a bad experience with the fallout from systemic PUVA, right? I think we all have in our practice some quote-unquote ex-psoriasis patient that is now covered in stellate lentigenes and has had a million squamous cell carcinomas, right? Mm -hmm. The, you know, after 250 sessions or this many joules of systemic PUVA, it turns out, whoops, you know, squamous cell carcinomas were increased quite a bit. You know, we've had narrowband UVB for a while, and even my patients who have had 1,000, 2,000, 4,000 exposures, they just don't look sun damaged the same way that PUVA mm -hmm. people do, mm -hmm. right? You know, in a way, UVB is highly energetic. We think it could cause skin cancer, but it appears that the experience with it is overwhelmingly positive. And so most guidelines do not even cap out at a number of sessions. Some international guidelines, they just kind of fall back on what's happened with the PUVA in the past. And they might tell people, ooh, 250 exposures, you might start to uh, consider uh, switching it okay. up. But the problem is switching it up to what, right? <laughs> we are we are quality of life doctors and we're trying to uh, help out our patients whose uh, conditions might really be bothersome to their lives, right? And so... We have to weigh the pros and the cons. One way of doing that is to do skin checks on people who t do phototherapy, right? And so I don't think it is unreasonable to do a head-to-toe at least once a year on someone who's on phototherapy to make sure that you're not irradiating a basal <laughs> cell that's already there. Um, Good point. You know, I think that that, that level of uh, surveillance certainly, um, you know, at least makes so sense. You probably work that into your practice. And, and I think that does sound, you know, obviously prudent and reasonable. Thinking about PUVA on sort of the flip side of that, um, different centers use different things. So I know, you know, our center in Halifax uses bath puva for the most part however our site that's a couple hours outside the city tend to use oral sorolin they don't have the bath capacity and so when you have a patient for example that's on oral sorolin if you use it do you, how do you counsel them just about their day-to-day -day sun protection because they essentially are always sensitive yeah, the patients on systemic PUVA do remain sen do remain sensitive throughout. You know, I think we want to make sure they have decent eye pro eye protection and that they 
basically have the uh, same type of life that we hope that our melanoma patients have <laughs> with minimizing sun exposure, uh, wide brim haps and all of that. I have to say, we I probably haven't prescribed Sorolin in about four years. Uh, and so most of the PUVA that we do here in Vancouver is hand foot topical right. PUVA. Thinking about other, not that Sorolin's an adjunct treatment to PUVA as part of the, the key of it, but just thinking about other adjunctive things that some centers will use. And I know we still have some patients on the uh, old school sort of Geckerman um tar-based regimens or the Ingram's anthralin regimens. Do you use mm -hmm. much of that? And if so, what makes you decide to add that in? Yeah, we are pretty privileged uh, at um, here at, because at VGH Skin Care Center, we actually have a daycare center where patients can go to for a couple of weeks where they will get anthralin tar and light and they get a lot of teaching about how to use uh, their topicals. The... Um, I'm not really afraid of combining a whole bunch of stuff topically for patients with light. And maybe systemically, if we need that little boost, I might add on acetretin. So the classic the re -UVB -UVB yeah. combination. Or the re-UVB, I guess, is yeah. better. Though. Yeah, it's, uh, it is an interesting combination. And I think that when we're thinking about the other drugs that we might use, patients like the idea that we're not altering their immune system. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's listen to another question from one of the dermatology residents. Hi, Dermalogs. This is Mimi Tran from the University of British Columbia. My question is that with all the effective drugs we have for psoriasis, eczema, and what have you, isn't phototherapy now outdated or about to become outdated? Well, it's certainly less sexy than <laughs> injecting biologics. <laughs> the... Um... You know, the, we are so lucky that we've had these series of revolutions in our therapeutics for our patients, right? And um, But at the same time, I would much rather have, you know, multiple arrows in my quiver to match them to the right patient. You know, the you're right, we have amazing drugs to treat uh, psoriasis. You know, but if we look at, for instance, the PASI 75 of two to three months of uh, narrowband UVB, it's between 60 and 70 if it's done well, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of riv rivaling maybe, uh, you know, anti-TNF drugs, for True. instance. <laughs> Um, certainly the cost effectiveness of the treatment has been proven time and time again uh, if uh, the technology is present within our patients' communities, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it's just a West Coast thing, but our patients do like to get away with treatments that have zero internal side effects, right? Mm -hmm. And so I often try to simplify it with my patients. If they're not well-managed with topicals, I'll tell them, you know, we can treat these diseases in four different ways. We put ointments on the skin, we shine lights, we give you oral drugs, or we give you injectable drugs, which is a bit crude and oversimplified. But when you're at that crossroads between going beyond topicals, it's often going to be a choice of, okay, where do you live? Uh, are you risk averse? Or what are you willing to do for your own treatment, basically? I think here on the East Coast, we like all the synthetic drugs. Uh, no, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Uh, I'm just kidding. I think there's certainly a role. And I mean, there's a number of conditions 
I think that we treat with light very successfully that we really don't have that other option for. And so I, I, I guess I think of it more in terms of psoriasis, but we've also talked about vitiligo, mycosis fungoides, you know, uremic pruritus, all these other things where light really does play a role. And one thing I want the residents to remember is, you know, think of phototherapy and don't forget um, of all the benefits and potential uses that you can get from it. Who do you think, I mean, and I, I could probably answer this based on our conversation so far, but who do you think is the ideal candidate for, for phototherapy for narrowband UVB? Yeah, I think, you know, the ideal candidate is someone whose topicals haven't controlled their disease. They have a diagnosis or a disease that is UV responsive. They either have the luxury of coming at times where the clinic is not too busy or uh, can somehow make it uh, practically, and they are a bit of a creature of habit who is going to be able to uh, pick up that habit of coming for uh, a certain period of time. I think also one area, and you might be able to comment on this, I've had a fair amount of success using phototherapy for uh, itchy patients, in particular pirigo patients. And I think part of it also might be that decreased stress, you know, having that point of care contact with, with uh, healthcare professionals frequently. And it's sort of that, that decreased stress and, uh, you know, I don't know, pat on the back thing that comes along with it that maybe is also a benefit beyond just the light. Um I mean, I absolutely believe it. You know, we train for years in medicine and science. And then really what keeps us awake at night is often the relationships. And, you know, if you go to the VGH phototherapy clinic around Christmas time, there is piles upon piles of foods and chocolate from patients who have formed these really long lasting relationships with the staff there who know them personally. Mm-hmm. You know, some of my patients have been going to the same place for their life for 20 years. Wow. They're not interested in, you know, going to another <laughs> light booth or necessarily doing another treatment if it's working out for them. Yeah. And um, I definitely uh, agree with you that, you know, it's kind of quote unquote laying hands or, yeah. you know, g- giving the care and maybe that sense of community to a group of people who understand your disease and don't really think about it, you know, as being your entire identity, right? Yeah. And so it's a very positive environment. We're getting deep here. Uh, (laughs) Now, um, I do want to, so I want to ask one other thing too, which is that, you know, uh, or I want to ask a couple other things, but one thing that I think about and and I get asked often is people will say, okay, I live far away, but, you know, I want to try this light thing and why don't I just go and buy one of these home units? Um, Do you have a lot of patients using home units? If so, do you guys help to facilitate that at, at your institution or do you try to encourage them to actually come and have light first i guess to to make sure it's worth their investment yeah the usually my attitude with this is that i would like them to try light for three months the the free light basically right (laughs) you know the light that their uh, health insurance is paying for because uh you know first of all it would be good to know if they are uh, you know their condition is really light responsive and it also teaches them a lot about the regularity and you know, you miss two weeks, you have to reduce, you know, they learn a lot from that. Mm -hmm. And then I have maybe half a dozen patients who do have home units. So it's not a huge amount of them. And I think the last thing we want to do is to lose contact with them. Right. right? And so I actually see them just as routinely as I would uh, my regular phototherapy patients to, uh, you know, check on their skin, go over their treatment, rediscuss their alternatives. 
and uh, I mean it does require a certain level of being able to do math yeah <laughs> uh, and you know having an area to store all that uh, but and then we are also very lucky that the VGH phototherapy unit nursing staff are available to help them out troubleshoot yeah. uh, with the principals if uh, if they're not sure about something. Yeah, and that's probably, we yeah. have the same thing here, and I suspect at most big centers they probably do as well, which is which is great. Um, so just to, you know, to talk a little bit into things that you think about with side effects or risks. So, you know, what if somebody gets a burn, et cetera, et cetera, maybe we can go to that geek out portion, because I think this is when we have to start thinking about how you determine things like fluence and exposure time and the different irradiant. So maybe give us that, you know, I'm a resident, I'm studying, I need to know the basic physics of phototherapy. What do I need to know? Yeah, I think one of the first things that we wonder about is uh, how do you get started? What dose and, you know, what, yeah. um, you know, how would you decide that? I think there's really two ways of deciding that. And the number one being the most practical one is determination of Fitzpatrick's can phototype for the patient. Right. And and really most commercial devices are going to come with recommended doses according to the Fitzpatrick type. Okay. The other more personalized and maybe more precise way of doing it would be to measure a patient's minimal erythema dose or MED, right? Right. And so when we do that, we shine incremental amounts of light on their back and we follow up on them 24 hours to see what the minimal erythema, you know, the barely perceptible erythema dose will be. And we give them about 70% of that. But because that's so onerous of time and visits, it is rarely done unless there are some special scenarios. And then once that's done, patients come at their starting dose and depending on the protocol might increase 10, 15, 20% if they keep coming two to three times a week and they uh, feel good. Mm -hmm. One thing and the dose that we talk about is always fluence, mm -hmm. which is the total dose per area either in millijoules per centimeter square for UV or in joules per centimeter square for UVA. And what's really going to dictate the total fluence is the exposure time. Okay. And that I really didn't truly understand for a long time until I made a bit of an analogy. You know, when you put a toast in the toaster, if you turn it from two to five, the coil isn't any hotter. Your toast is just staying in there longer. And that's really what's happening with a UV booth. The lights are either on or off, and they're delivering light at what's called irradiance. So it's a speed of delivery of energy. And so if you multiply that by the amount of seconds that the patient is exposed to, that's going to give the fluence, which is that total dose. And so we, you know, of course, light bulbs tire out and need replacement over time. So the uh, irradiance from the light might reduce very slowly over time. And booths are either equipped to constantly measure that or uh, they can be calibrated and measured weekly by staff if they're uh, a little bit older so that we make sure that we're delivering the right dose of light to the patient. I love that toast analogy. I think it makes it super clear. So awesome. I was going to ask too, so I guess if some of the residents are thinking about, you know, maybe in their offices or practice, they want to work in doing some phototherapy or they want to have some units. Um, I was going to ask about maintenance, bulb replacement, and calibration. You just kind of touched on that. But um, any other comments, I guess, for or tips if somebody wanted to put phototherapy unit in their office? 
You know, I think probably the highest yield piece of technology to get would be uh, a narrowband UVB booth uh, because it can treat uh, so many things. The, um, you know, I think more modern booths give you little blips and suggestions as to when uh, bulbs should be updated. So that's, uh, you know, quite helpful. And the uh, suppliers or the companies actually have people that can come in and service them routinely for us so that it can take a little bit of the responsibility uh, out of our hands. Well, that's... It is our it is our responsibility, though, to make sure that the math is right and that the patients are getting the appropriate doses, right? And so, yeah. you know, patients with the same last name and, you know, the, you know we really need to make, you know, uh, our staff usually check date of birth and name at the same time to really make sure that uh, we're treating the right person. Yeah, that would be very important. You want, wouldn't want to give the same dose of a, you know, Fitz phototype 4 skin to somebody with phototype 1 for a different condition. Exactly. Do you guys do much in the way of photo testing, I guess, or do, or, or do you use a lot of phototherapy on the West Coast for um, polymorphous light eruption? We seem to have a lot of that here on the East Coast. Yeah, it's definitely a decent treatment to try to desensitize patients using uh, UVB for PMLE. And so most often, uh, you know, they'll come in the spring and maybe we'll treat them for a month or two. And I usually get them to uh, slowly transition to progressive outdoor exposure during that time. And I don't know why I linked that to photo testing, but I guess, you know, it just made me think of those two things at once. But do you do much photo testing or photo patch testing, which really probably only is relevant in very specific circumstances. Yeah, I think before I trained as a fellow with Dr. Louis, I think I mixed up a lot of those concepts up, right? Which I'm clearly I mean, doing you... right now. I can tell you're thinking <laughs> that, Vincent. I can tell you're thinking that. The, um, you know, when we think of uh, photo testing a patient, we that's a pretty vague term, right? Maybe we want to do photo provocation. Okay. That means we're shining UVA and UVB and we're following up on the patient either immediately if it's for uh, solar urticaria, for instance, Mm -hmm. or a few days later if we're not sure about the diagnosis of polymorphous light eruption. And so we might decide that we shine a tiny little one inch square on the back with various wavelengths on the patient and reassess them later and see if we can generate their condition. And we could even decide to biopsy in that little square if we weren't sure. But I have to say, polymorphous light eruption is overwhelmingly a clinical diagnosis where we rarely move on to doing that. That makes sense. And another type of photo testing is the MED testing that we touched on. Yes. Which is different than photo provocation. When we do MEDs, we are looking at people's ability to burn. And do they burn more easily than other people? I'll give you an example. For instance, chronic actinic dermatosis mm-hmm. it's going to be really hard to provocate photo provocate this disease however they usually have reduced meds to uva and uvb and so we can look at those meds and see if they're very low that might support the diagnosis and then the uh, third thing that you mentioned is photo patch testing which is because photoallergy is so rare Uh, When I was working at the phototherapy clinic, we would make sure that they were fully patch tested before and fully photo tested before, before we went through the hassle of photo patch testing. Because, listen to this, they need two sets of patches with the same allergens. So let's say on Monday, they'll get both of those put on. 
on Tuesday will lift one of the patches, irradiate their back with UVA, put them back on, and then they'll get their readings. And if it's a true photocontact allergy, they'll only react on the site that had the allergen and the UVA exposure. Right. But if they have just a regular um, contact allergy, they should react to both on both on both sets. Right. But hopefully you would have picked that up prior to with your basic patch testing in the first place. Hopefully. Exactly. Yeah. So it yeah. does require quite a bit of coordination. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Having recently just put a few patches on my back for things that I thought I was allergic to, uh, I can't imagine having two full sets on there because you know what? <laughs> it gave me a little more empathy for people going through the patch testing process. Um, but that's that's more of an aside. Again, is there anything that you think we didn't touch on with regard to more traditional phototherapy that would be uh, a key point for residents to to take home? You know, I, I, it really resonated with me when you said, you know, do think about phototherapy, right? I think one of the ways that I studied as a resident was to try to think of a therapeutic ladder for most conditions, mm, right? Really good advice. And so, yeah. yeah, okay, what is the lifestyle stuff that I can change to begin with? Number two, what are the topicals available that I have? Number three, what are the physical or light-based treatments that can be used? and then to move on after that to oral drugs and then to uh, bi uh, biologics, I feel that that is the one thing that in my day-to-day -day life after studying all that, I really keep thinking like that. And it allows me to help uh, my patients make good decisions for themselves. Yeah, I think that's sage advice. I always, when I'm talking to residents or students, I always say, you know, don't just think about the pill portion, you know, think about non-pharmacologic, pharmacologic, lifestyle, other modalities. And so, you know, I, I really think that's important. So listen, uh, I wanted to, again, sincerely thank you so much for joining me. Season one veteran back at it for season two. I, <laughs> again, learned a lot about stuff that I probably should know, or maybe it's in the caverns of my brain somewhere. So, um, you know, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Great uh, learning. The residents are going to love it. And, uh, and if we have a season three, you're back. I'm on board. Thank awesome. you so much for having me. Thank you. Bye, Vincent. Bye. Dr. Vincent Richet is a medical and cosmetic dermatologist in Vancouver. He holds positions as clinical instructor and director of continuing medical education at the Department of Dermatology and Skin Science at the University of British Columbia, and he also practices at Pacific Derm. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes. And if you liked it, give us a rating, tell your friends, colleagues, share on social media. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy.